Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you, apart from financially better off after your home defeat yesterday? Well, I'm disappointed that we lost, but that finance part of me always kicks in. And if I think the opposition are good value, I'll I'll go on them to have a bet. West Ham were 9-2, to two. James Ward-Prowse always scores against Brighton. He's got a, he had a fantastic track record against us for Southampton. So uh, I decided to... I, I call it an emotional hedge, Kevin, rather than Macbeth, because I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to look at it through a financial lens. Uh, and that came in the, the football less so. Yeah, if you want to ask me how I am, Kieran, uh, the answer is uh, paranoid. Uh, not just because you haven't asked me how I am, but because we are recording this on a, a new platform um, which I, I don't think I'm meant to name for reasons of privacy, etc. But we're on a new platform, and apparently, uh, producer guy has asked me to breathe less. He says that it, it's really sensitive sound equipment, so he's asked me if I could cut down the breathing about 25%. He said, "So if, well, if it was 100%, percent i will be more concerned. Uh, I'd, I'd be really worried. Yeah. So if, if we, we can actually see each other, Kieran, so if, yes. if I go blue in the face at any time, if you could just give me a shout, that would be great." Breathe more, Kevin. That will be the shout. Oh yeah, breathe more. Yeah, yeah. I, it's. I think it's because I keep trying to unmute the mic. And the, the trouble is, I've had to make because I've moved the microphone a lot further away, which means the laptop's a lot further away. Which means I've had to put the script into a font the size of a menu in an old folks' home, which is <laughs> the only way I can see it from this distance. But we'll crack on, Kira. We'll we'll work through these problems for the sake of our lovely listeners. It's it's questions day, Kira, but. We're going to start with the, a huge news story, Kieran, and, and the people of Spain should have spent the week celebrating a fantastic World Cup victory and a situation that could have been headed off, well, A, by not behaving in that way, and B, by immediately apologising, is turning into a huge issue with possible legal action, players going on strike. Is it? Are you able to put a financial cost on what's happened in Spain this week, Kieran, at all? Well, to, to put a definitive figure on it, I don't think is feasible. But in terms of lost opportunities, as far as the Spanish FA are concerned, there would have been um, commercial partners. There would have been hospitality options in terms of the next match. They could be able to sell tickets at higher prices. Um, the, the Spanish women's team have won the Women's World Cup for the first time. And, and congratulations to them. They, they they were the best team on the day. And I think we all acknowledge that. Um, and it was a fantastic achievement. And there were there were celebrations taking place in Spain as well. And now this has all been overshadowed. So yeah, the, the behaviour of, of the president is for, for other shows. But I think people will know that our views echo those of the vast majority of people who have commentated on it here. Um it's 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 just such a shame, um, and what will happen if the Spanish FA decides to continue down the route of we're backing our man? Is what happens at the next game where uh, the Spanish women's team are playing? Because you're not going to have any players. You will have lost potentially some of your coaching staff. 
you will be struggling to find sponsors because they won't want to align themselves with, with those values. And the way that they have doubled down in yeah, the, the politest thing you can say is that he made a, a crass mistake. And I think given his reaction since then, he clearly doesn't see it like that. He, um, and I think that brings into issue much broader issues in terms of yeah, misogyny, sexism within the game, which again is for, for other shows, um, that it's just, it's, it's a textbook example of how not to deal with something. And from, from a financial point of view, if they continue down that route, there will be repercussions because they will lose out on, on monies going forwards in terms of people will boycott the match. Um, we, we've seen some, sol- some solidarity from some of the men's teams already, and I, and I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for, for them to stand up on, on a stronger platform there. And it just, yeah, heads will roll, I suspect, in, in due course. Yeah, I, I don't know, Kieran, what the Spanish for silver-tongued friends is, um, but it looks like they'll be making a lot of money. If the FA continue down this route of, as you say, taking legal action against her because their ludicrous analysis of the VT shows that she actually lifted him up and forced him to kiss her, which, again, is almost beyond satire. But that's going to cost a lot of money, not only in legal expenses, as you say, but in just in terms of the image of Spanish football around the world. I mean, we spoke to a very nice chap who, who is in charge of Spanish football in India, I should think he's furious about this as well. I should think that all the people whose job it is to sell Spanish football around the world, a product, for want of a better word, which is a is, is a brilliant one, they're, all those people, their, their job has been made 100% harder than it, it should have been. And already, in a, the space of a week, the reputation of Spanish football has been put back 10, 15 years, isn't it? It, it has. And... <laughs> Given that the game is in a development phase, you know, the, the crowds were fantastic, the viewing figures were fantastic, the the money from FIFA, although it will, of course, be compared to the amount paid for the Men's World Cup, is still substantially higher than in the, the previous World Cup. All of those positives will now be overshadowed by A, the actions, and B, the the continued doubling down, trebling down, whatever it is that's coming from the Spanish authority. And it's difficult to see how any of them can come out of this uh, at all. Uh, Even if you take a look at some of the the headlines in the Spanish newspapers, you know, global embarrassment, I think, was one of them. And that's that's how that is the perception. Mm. Our first question, Kieran, comes from Rashik Ray. And Rashik says, when games are postponed due to bad weather or bad pitch conditions... Do the travelling teams get any compensation or are they allowed to write off travelling expenses? Right. Um, I, I contacted um, one of our friends in the game who uh, is connected to a club in the EFL and uh, he said the home team would be responsible for effectively paying the, the travel costs uh, of the away team if they have travelled up to the match. So that's why... Um, you quite often see these decisions being made as late as possible because the home team's ground staff, uh, they will have to be paid regardless. You'll have employed the stewards regardless. And this is an additional cost being incurred by the the home team with regards to a match which is in danger 
of uh, of not taking place. Um, yeah, things do occur. Yeah, we, we are we are subject to weather, and uh, yeah, this isn't a uh, this isn't a climate change show, as we know. But the chances are that those issues are going to grow in future years as well. So uh, it's 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 an additional cost, and and that's why uh, the home teams take so much effort to try to get those matches over the line in terms of a starting and b finishing, uh, regardless of the severity of uh, inclement weather. I don't know, Kieran. Your IT skills are better than mine, but somebody listening to this pod may be able to help. Um, I'm having trouble scrolling the script up, Kieran, and I think what may have happened is I've made the font so big, I've actually made it heavier. Is that possible? So the, I don't think it works like that. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll, I would ask Ali Ored, but um, <laughs> one of them's still fast asleep in bed, and the other one's uh, eyebrows are high enough in her head already without me asking whether <laughs> making the font bigger makes it heavier. Uh, Sandra Thompson has our next question, and Sandra says... As a Rotherham United fan, I'm pleased that we are generally on the good step from a financial point of view. However, I'm told that the stadium is not owned by the club and instead is owned by the owner's lighting company, ASD Lighting, and the club pays £880,000 a year to rent the stadium to them. How worried should I be about this, considering a number of other clubs have separated the ground from the club? What happens if Tony Stewart walks away or sells up? Is this a risk we need to be potentially concerned about this is something Kieran that we have spoken in general about quite a lot on the pod but I'm happy to to visit it as a as a specific um, club issue especially as uh, Sandra mentions Rotherham and uh, normally a club that you speak of with some admiration in terms of how they conduct themselves that's right and indeed they might be mentioned a little bit later in this podcast in respect of another question I, I, Kieran, with, with, I, I, I would I would Scroll ahead and check that, but clearly, with, with the, the heavy font issue, <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, with regards to Rotherham United, uh, Sandra is is totally correct. Uh, we are seeing increasingly stadium companies being separate from the football club, and quite often they are they are owned by a third party together. With regards to Rotherham's specific situation, um. Tony Stewart does charge £1 million a year from one of his ASD companies uh, for the rent. At the same time, he sponsors Rotherham United via ASD £1 million. So the net cost to the club is is a neutral one. Um, Sponsorship uh, is... Is is a reasonable fee, I would say, by by a club in, in championship standards. League One probably a little bit high, higher than the average that you would expect. Rotherham are in an identical position to the vast majority of football clubs in that ultimately they are beholden to the club owner for their continued participation in the game, in the sense that. They are losing money, even though they're one of the better run clubs. They're still losing a little bit of money each season. That those losses are being underwritten effectively by the owner in the form of capital injections, either through loans, either through generous sponsorship deals, or by the owners putting money in in the form of shares. If the owner's personal circumstances change, and that, remember, was the 
initial issue that happened with regards to Berry Football Club with Stuart Day, then you might end up in a forced sale situation. It's also happened at clubs such as Scunthorpe United with uh, their former owner. He he uh, he had other issues to deal with. So so that can result in in the club either being sold to to somebody who you wouldn't necessarily want it to be sold to. Or worst case scenario, the, the club having to go into some form of, info, of formal insolvency arrangement, um, or the owner loses interest. Yeah, that was the case in, with Derby. Mel Morris had put a lot of money in, and then decided I'm, I'm not getting a lot out of this, and, and decided through a combination of, of not paying money to HMRC and uh, looking at the, the ongoing costs of running the club that he was no longer willing to fund it and put the club into administration. And that results, of course, in points deductions, neither of which are ideal. But finding a solution in in a scenario in which clubs do run on a break-even basis, that's impossible. Again, I was I was fortunate enough to be in contact. You know, we're, we're recording this on a Sunday morning, and people are very generous with their time. Um, I, I was in touch with somebody that owns a, a football club, and they say, what am I supposed to do? Uh, if, if if I put money into the club, I get no thanks for it. If I put less money into the club, I get grief sometimes from the fans, sometimes from the manager stroke coach. And you can understand it from the manager stroke coach's point of view because their job is dependent upon performances and performances are linked to the amount of money spent on the squad. Um, and at the same time, if I put up a, the price of a packet of Maltesers by 20 pence in the club shop, I get grief for that as well. So where is the money supposed to come from? So in the case of Rotherham United, uh, Tony Stewart is a pretty generous owner. Uh, he he has moved them. You know, I'm I'm old enough to to remember going to Millmore, which was their old stadium, to, to see Brighton lose there many many years ago, uh, as well as the the New York the new stadium, and that is. You know, significantly due to the the benevolence of the owner. So, should should Sandra be worried? I would say less worried than fans of many other clubs because the losses being incurred by Rotherham United are only in the region of twenty thousand. And I use that word only operatively because if you've not got a spare twenty grand a week, it's still a, a big problem but are in the region of 20 grand a week, which is one of the lowest as far as the the championship is concerned. Remember, we said that the the average losses being made are around about £470,000 a week. So Rotherham, I think, would, would be fine in the sense that even if the owner's circumstances changed, given the number of people who are interested in buying a football club at present, I think Rotherham actually has quite a few things in its favour. It's it's closer. It's it's close to an international airport. It's, it's not far away from Leeds Bradford, um, so therefore that will be attractive to to somebody who wants to fly in. It it's in a footballing you know passionate area. It's got a decent stadium, which could be part of an overall package. So on, from those points of view, I think those are all positives. And also that there's no indication whatsoever that Tony Stewart's other businesses are doing poorly. Mm. Why any club owner is on Twitter, Kieran, is beyond me. Really, it's because no one ever, no one ever tweets a club owner to say it. 
Has anyone told you you're doing quite a good job this week? It's just, I keep saying to Steve Parrish when I see him, he says the grief I get, well, so we'll come off Twitter then. That'd be, but then if they do come off Twitter, everyone goes, oh, the club's going bust. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> £20,000 a week lost, Kieran, in the, it almost seems quaint. It, it's cute. It's almost you feel like Rotherham aren't trying hard enough. But it's, it's and it's what a strange way to prove that we need this podcast by saying they're only losing twenty grand a week. Any other business? This this idea, Kieran, that he's renting the stadium to the club for around a million pound a year, and he's paying around a million pound a year to sponsor the club. Is that a fairly standard business practice in football? Um, I wouldn't say it's that common. But you can see the logic of it because it means that you don't have to have money shifting from one company to another in terms of uh, transfers from bank accounts. I, I think it is looking at Rotherham's accounts for 2022 when they were a League One club. I would say that's quite a, a generous overall sponsorship deal for a third tier club. Um, so the club were probably net winners in that. As a championship club, which which they are, of course, at present, it's, again, a re- I'd say it's reasonable rather than uh, spectacular. Um, it, it comes down to the personal circumstances of, of the individuals, but there's a lot of logic behind it. The EFL, I presume, will be assessing all commercial deals for fair market value, and I think they'll be fine with that. So it, it works for all parties. In terms of rent, to, to put it into context, Rotherham are paying £1 million pounds a year in rent. West Ham are paying £3 million, uh, for a property in London where they have to pay for practically nothing in terms of the upkeep of the stadium. Uh, and they, they don't even have to go and pay for the corner flag. So I think West Ham have got the best deal as, as far as a tenant is concerned in football. Um, although... You're paying for that, Kevin, as you know, through your uh, London rates uh, in terms of local taxes. Which which makes it even more galling, Kieran, that you made a packet out of West Ham yesterday. So it seems like everyone's making money out of West Ham here except me and the rest of London. Kevin Kissan has a very interesting one, Kieran. It's one of those questions I like because it's not something that's occurred to me ever. But once you see it asked, you think, well, why has it not occurred to me? Kevin says, we often say that the third, fourth place playoff at a World Cup is meaningless, but how much are these games worth to the national FAs in both the women's and men's World Cups? In other words, how much do you get for finishing third rather than fourth? Well, this, as you can imagine, sent me down a a Sunday morning vortex of uh, FIFA's own financial statements. Now, as far as... The Men's World Cup is concerned, and clearly there is a significant difference between the finances of the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup, and we've dealt with that as a separate story historically. If you achieve third place in the Men's World Cup, the prize money is $27 Now, Argentina got $42 for winning it, so it's still quite beneficial. The difference between third and fourth place is $2 million. So the the fourth place uh, position, the the losing people in the match, they they missed out on on $2 million. So they got $25 When we take a look at the Women's World Cup, and again, I, I was saying earlier that there has been a significant increase. And 
against the Women's World Cup historically. I think we've got two, two forms of benchmarking here. People will benchmark against the men's competition, but I think we also, and I always say whenever you're doing any form of analysis, and you know, this is what I say to my students, you should always analyse against two sets of parameters. First of all, your own parameters historically. So how fast is the club growing? How fast are the revenues growing compared to ours? And then you would look at a peer group. And of course, you know, the peer group, many people say the Women's World Cup benchmarked against the men's. As far as the Women's World Cup is concerned, if you finish third, you get 2.61 million euros, which is a hundred and sorry, two point six one million dollars, which is a hundred and forty thousand more than the side finishing fourth. Uh, but it's still around about a tenth of the money that was allocated as far as the men's competition is concerned. The Lionesses, uh, they earned three million for the uh, FA as far as being runners up in the competition. I think Spain got four million. So it's 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 a good night out. You know, it's a it's a significant amount of money, hmm. without doubt. Uh, it is much higher than, than we've previously had in the women's competition, but the gap is still huge. And I suspect that that gap might decrease in percentage terms, but still increase in form of monetary, overall monetary terms uh, for the next tournament or two at least. We'll have to see what the reaction will have been. Uh, it's it's a very difficult Women's World Cup to assess financially because FIFA left it so late before agreeing the uh, TV deals with so many countries, which mm. meant that the broadcasters, they couldn't commit to marketing the competition in a way that they would have presumably have liked in the way that we normally see the ramping up before the men's competition. FIFA, of course, have promised parity, haven't they, in prize money from 2027. Um, so we'll wait to see how that plays out. The chances are they could be talking about cutting the men's money to make parity that way. But they have made the right noises about making sure the women and the men are paid the same uh, money for winning tournaments. I'd say that's more than I thought you would get for the, that third, fourth place playoff, which is a game I don't know anybody who's ever watched to be perfectly honest. Um, so Even when England no, I, did, I, I not watched it? No, as a matter of principle, you, you wouldn't watch it. Uh, Thomas Simmons asks our next question, Kieran. Um, and it's a very interesting one because it's about a story we covered last season and we covered it in a particularly um, positive way. We thought this was a good story and shone a good light on all concerned but I don't know if Thomas is more cynical. I don't know if he meant to, meant to imply that there might be something else behind it. Um, possibly not. And if you don't, Thomas, I apologise. Uh, Thomas says, last season, Phil Bardsley agreed to join Stockport County. And as part of the deal, he agreed to donate his whole salary to the Stockport County Community Trust. Now, I believe you've said before that community funding doesn't go against FFP profit and sustainability. But does this mean that Stockport could put this cost through under community, meaning it doesn't negatively affect their FFP? Additionally, would this have benefited Phil Bardsley, i.e. could he have offset this loss in his own taxes? If that is the case, could more clubs do this in future? Right. 
first of all, I think once again, a lot of praise should be given to Phil Bardsley here because ultimately he did not receive a salary in terms of uh, his his uh, year at Stockport. And as a result of that, he was awarded the PFA Community Champion for season 22-23. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough, I'm, I'm going to the PFA annual dinner uh, this Tuesday. Uh, so I, I think they got the wrong Maguire when they sent out the invite, but, but I'll take it all the same. Um, <laughs> you, so, you haven't got a plus one going, presumably? No, no, sadly not. No, she's not. She's not happy. She's not happy. She. I wasn't talking about the Baroness. Right. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um. So, what are what are the the, the the issues behind this? Well, as, as our as our very good friends in the legal community uh, always tell us, whenever we ask them any question. Well, Kieran, well, Kevin, it depends. And what it depends upon here is the nature of the setup. It could have been that Phil Bardsley has agreed to receive a nominal salary of £1 for his employment services for the year, for the season 22-23. And then the football club has given a donation equivalent to what they would have paid him in terms of salary to the community scheme. So that's that's one vehicle. Now people say, well, you know, surely that nobody would accept a, a salary of one pound. Um, if you take a look at uh, Steve Jobs at Apple, who was you know, the man behind the iPhone, the man behind iTunes, and all of this type of stuff, which has made Apple the most valuable company in the world as far as stock market capitalization is concerned, he famously was only paid one dollar a year in terms of his salary at Apple. So it, it does happen. Uh, he, he did have other benefits, though, to be fair. So they, they could have said, we'll pay you a pound and we're going to give you know, X thousand pounds, which would have been your salary, to the community scheme. Or he could have been paid his full salary and effectively transferred that money on, on a monthly basis to the community scheme. The downside of that is that PAYE and national insurance would have been incurred as a result of that. So therefore, money would have gone to the Treasury as opposed to the community scheme. Um, How does that impact upon his personal circumstances? Well, he might have been able to claim that as gift aid. I don't teach tax anymore. So my my tax accounting knowledge is is fairly, fairly uh, appalling. Um, And if he had other earnings against uh, against his, his earnings, his overall income, in that particular tax year, that gift aid could have contributed there. So it, it all it all starts to get a little bit complicated. In terms of Thomas's comments with regards to community funding doesn't count with regards to financial fair play calculations, you're absolutely right, Thomas. However, profitability and sustainability rules only apply to the Premier League and the championship. And in League One and League Two, we have the wonderfully named SCMP, Salary Cost Management Protocol Rules, um, which again sends me scurrying to the EFL handbook at 7am on, on a Sunday morning. And just to check the numbers here, as far as a club 
of Stockport's stature in League Two is concerned, um, they are limited to paying no more than 50% of their total income in the form of wages. So therefore, they could have a benefit here because if his, his salary was ignored and he, he did just accept the £1 a year salary, then um, that they there will be nothing going against that particular calculation. So I think the club will have benefited from this if they've gone down that particular route. I feel slightly better about myself, Kieran, uh, knowing that the country's leading football finance expert has uh, zero tax accounting knowledge. I may I may use that in my next discussion with the good people at HMRC. Well, if he knows nothing about it, why are you expecting me to know anything about it? Also, I was slightly distracted. Just imagine the thousand-yard stare you'd get from the Baroness if you were to announce that you had you had tickets for this really fancy PFA dinner up in town, and you had a plus one. And then you said, "Kevin can't wait." Just imagine, just, ima- <laughs> just imagine the response you would have got. <laughs> it's, a, it's a black tie event as well, so oh, she, she likes dressing up for those as the Baroness. I imagine she looked great in a black tie, Kieran, would she not? Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Our, our next question comes from Richard Lachance. Um, I, I hope it's pronounced Richard Lachance. It might be Richard Lachance, as in Richard Digence, which is a reference Richard won't get, along with most of our other listeners, because Richard is a long-time listener from the United States, Detroit. Uh, And Richard says, thank you for your fantastic in-depth football financing content. Uh, I think that's addressed at you, Kieran, that comment. Uh, Thank you for the thank you, Richard. We always like a thank you. That's very kind of you. Richard's question is uh, regarding the Real Madrid-Palmeiras transfer for 16-year-old Endrick. And Richard says, I read that Endrick will remain at Palmeiras until 2024 before joining Real Madrid. With Madrid paying a 60 euro, 60 million euro fee, there appears to be more risks in this than a typical transfer. So he won't be within the Spanish club's immediate supervision or under the advisement of the squad on medical training, recovery, etc. How would Real Madrid go about mitigating the risks of this transfer, given the extended time period before he joins the clubs? Insurance policies, or is there a form of transfer hedge? Well, um, well, Richard, first of all, again, thank you for the kind words. Um, secondly, this ultimately comes down to FIFA regulations. And we have been mixed in terms of our assessment of FIFA. But once again here, I'm going to say their, their rules are, in my view, the appropriate ones. Under FIFA rules, you are not allowed to have an international transfer of any player prior to their 18th birthday. And this is one of the issues we've discussed in terms of the post-Brexit landscape, for example, because if you've got a single market, as they have in Europe, Real Madrid, if if this uh, if Hendrik had come from Portugal or France or Belgium, they would have been able to, A, both sign him and he could move to Real Madrid uh, at the age of 16. But he's not allowed to do that until his 18th birthday. And that's the reason why he's staying at Palmeiras. So in terms of mitigating risk, I suspect they'll have somebody um, observing his every performance. I suggest that they will also probably be encouraging Palmeiras. Um, And this could be part of contractual obligations to uh, make sure that his 
various KPIs, his various uh, health metrics are being checked on a daily, weekly basis. And the chances are the clubs do that anyway. I'm sure, yeah, we, we both know players and former players who have to go in. Yeah, their their, their weight is measured on a weekly basis. Uh, their their level of, of fat in the body is measured on a regular basis and so on. Yeah, they, they are treated in many ways, you know, similar to elite racehorses in that they are very, very carefully monitored with regards to their, their physical um, well-being. So Real Madrid will potentially have some small print lodged in the in the contract because sixty million euro sixty million euro for a sixteen year old is yeah we, we've spoken about the transfer market this one I hadn't seen this transfer before but it does seem to be quite a high risk one although looking at the uh, backstory of Endrick he, he does seem a, a very very uh, spectacular prospect but that's that's of course uh, what we can can also see. Does this happen elsewhere? Well, it, it, it does. You know, you've, you've only got to go back to, to your club, Crystal Palace, when, when you sold Wilfred Zaha to Manchester United and he stayed at the club yeah. for the remainder of the season, <clears throat> yeah. which I personally think was a big mistake of by Manchester United. Uh, but, but, but then I would, wouldn't I? That it led to what, what we still just refer to as the night of shame at the Amex. Um <laughs> Which, which, which I, you might you might view from from a slightly more positive lens, um, and Brighton did exactly the same with uh, uh, Alexis McAllister. You know, they they bought him from an Argentinian club, and they immediately said, "We want we want you to stay for you know twelve eighteen months as part of your development." So, I think we, it could be seen in, in that particular light, and and those type of transfers where a club spots a player that they would like to secure the talents of, they don't feel that player is in a position um, from a development point of view or in the case of here with Real Madrid, from a legal point of view yeah. to, to bring across immediately and, and they go down this particular route. They are the sort of transfers, Kieran, that drive football fans up the wall. They generally do. You, you, everyone gets really excited. So we've got this young... Uruguayan lads, fantastic. Yeah, do you think he'll start first game? I don't think so because he's playing for a Belgian third division team for the next two years as part of the deal. Uh, Ben Gardner has our next question, Kieran, and I suspect this may be one of the very rare questions we have that has a yes or no answer, basically. And Ben says, you've often talked about the damage that's been caused by the huge income gap between the Premier League and the Championship. But I was wondering if the strength of the English game has also damaged European leagues. Have the revenues of other European leagues declined as English footballs have risen? Yes and no. Oh, really? Is my answer. Ah, okay. Um, I would say yes in, in the sense that as a result of the strength of the Premier League, English clubs have made greater progress in European competition. So therefore, as a result of that, clubs from other European nations have made relatively less, less progress and therefore their, their income has declined. In terms of attractiveness to brands, the success of the Premier League in terms of being the go-to product through the eyes of broadcasters who want to have, uh, have a, a subscription model, then they lose out because the, the you know, we've said this on many occasions the premier league it got in first 
it, uh, it gave very, very generous terms to overseas broadcasters in those early days and benefited as a result. Um, that means that those clubs have lost out on what I think they could have maximised in terms of their potential. But the reason where I said, no, if, if I'm a Real Madrid fan, if, if, I'm, uh, if I'm a Sevilla fan, if I'm a Borussia Dortmund fan, I still support my club. And those clubs still sell out every single match. So you could argue, well, they are maximising their income. And whilst they are relatively less well-off than the Premier League, if we, if we take a look at the numbers, it works out that the Premier League generates twice as much revenue as La Liga, twice as much money as the Bundesliga, twice as much money as Syria, Syria A, and four times as much as Ligue 1. Um, in France. Um, that's, that's my grade C, 1978, <laughs> French O-level, coming to the fore. Uh, Mr. Andrew, you can be proud of me at last. <laughs> Do you remember that dreadful, dreadful 70s sitcom called Mind Your Language? Oh, yes. Every time you say League, uh, I'm reminded of that dreadful, dreadful sitcom. Um, Craig Bruce has our next question. And Craig Bruce is one of our many, many listeners from Australia. Uh, we love our Australian listeners, so much so that I'd like to offer them all our condolences for losing the Ashes this summer. Now, I know our Australian listeners at this point will be saying, well, technically, Kevin, it's a two-all draw, and therefore we retain the Ashes. But according to the WhatsApp group that I'm in, which has a made-up Duckworth-Lewis system, we won the one at Old Trafford, so uh, we won the Ashes. Suck it up, Aussie. Uh, Craig Bruce, apologies. What a terribly, terrible, aggressive way to introduce a question from an Australian listener. Uh, I didn't know about this, Kieran, but it's um, I can understand why Craig is, is annoyed. Craig says, I'd be interested to know what you think about the A-League's mad decision to change the location of the grand final in the face of fan outrage to guarantee it takes place in Sydney for the sake of cash rather than the top-ranked team having a home final, as has happened previously. To put this into perspective, they have said they want to start a tradition like Wembley for English fans, conveniently forgetting that Melbourne is 850 kilometres away and Perth to Sydney is 4,000 kilometres, so the equivalent of London to Cairo. That's a tricky country to be an away fan in, Kieran, isn't it? I, it's, it's, I, I thank you for that perspective, by the way, Craig, because I obviously I, I've MasterChef Australia, as Kieran knows, is my favourite TV show of all time. R.I.P. Jock. I love MasterChef Australia. I, I, until Craig gave me those, I didn't quite realise what a massive country Australia actually is. So it seems like a strange decision, Kieran. From you, you were asking the fans of the club that are, uh, top the league, basically, to potentially pay thousands of dollars to get to see them in the final. Yes, you can. Yeah, I, I can see our very good friend Martin Searle uh, already, who, uh, <laughs> people that don't know Martin on social media, he does a a resume of the show um, after every episode. And uh, Kevin Maguire, so Kevin Day in Australia is big revelations. It's <laughs> <laughs> clearly going to get a mention. Fair point. <laughs> it's it's a continent as well. It is a, yes, it's it is a continent. I, I I started thinking that halfway through the answer, but yeah, let's let's not. Let's not muddy the waters by saying it's a continent. Let's let's accept your honour for the sake of record. Objection withdrawn. Australia, the court agrees, Australia is a big country. 
Um, so if I, th- I think Craig's raised a valid point. If we take a look at the A-League final, which took place uh, between, I think it was Melbourne City and Central Coast Mariners. Now, Central Coast Mariners is in from a place called Gosford, which is about an hour's drive from uh, Sydney. So that's not too bad. Even so, um, the attendance was, t- was 26,000. And part of the reason for that is that quite a few Melbourne fan groups, they boycotted the final because they they are opposed in principle, and you can understand this, to this particular uh, issue taking place. And also what I would say, Craig, is that although the FA Cup final does take place at Wembley, the FA Cup semi-finals also take place at Wembley, and, and that has caused consternation and aggravation amongst fans um we did have the fa cup final this year uh taking place between manchester united and manchester city those fans i appreciate by australian standards 200 miles is you know that's that's just a walk back home probably for you guys but uh there was there was it was a train strike weekend you know fans made a lot of sacrifices so Wembley is is not as glamorous uh, a, a hosting place for the FA Cup final as perhaps it used to be uh, for, for for those particular reasons. And in a country of the magnitude of Australia, I'm not really sure that the Australian Football Association have made a wise decision here because it is putting a huge amount of pressure on fans. And we all love our football clubs. Um, if if a match, uh, especially if it was from two clubs from the West Coast, you know, to expect the fans to travel that length of uh, of distance is is unreasonable, and it does show um, sometimes the commercial departments of organisations lead where the common sense departments seem to be lacking. Uh, and and uh, I guess, Kieran, that for a lot of fans, some of those distances involved mean that. Uh, flying is the only really viable option, which again, at a time when we're all looking at sustainability, putting the FA Cup final, the equivalent of the FA Cup final in a place where it means a lot of people have to fly to get there, which again is more expensive than other options, is not a good idea. Nick Phillips has a... They're all interesting questions, as I say. Nick Phillips says, in the light of last year's conspiracy theory, open brackets, unfounded in my opinion, close brackets, there's no point having a conspiracy theory, uh, Nick, and then saying it's not a conspiracy theory. But the conspiracy theory was that the French team were poisoned before the World Cup final. This made me remember two similar incidents with Brazil in 1998 and Tottenham in 2006, when both teams suffered from viruses, food poisoning, whatever you want to call it, which affected the players and potentially cost them their respective matches and therefore potentially huge amounts of revenue in Tottenham's case as they missed out on the Champions League place. When these incidents happen, do the clubs sue the hotels or dining establishments or is this covered by their own insurance? Yes, um, I have tried to contact some of our legal friends here, but unfortunately they're otherwise occupied. So therefore I'm relying upon the testimony testimony of pub lawyer Kieran Maguire <laughs> uh, in respect of this he's, particular judgment. He's good. He's cheap as well. <laughs> he is cheap, he's very cheap. cheap. That's right. He's one of the cheaper pub lawyers. Does a lot does a lot of legal aid stuff for pub Yeah, he's very good. 
Lime and sodas are very, very reasonably priced as well, should <laughs> should you ever feel the need for a piece of pub lawyer advice. Unless you go to uh, Jamie Oliver's uh, restaurant, where I was charged £5 for a lime and soda, which... Well, well welcome to our world, Kieran, basically. <laughs> the sort of thing we pay. If I only paid five quid for a drink, most places I go to, I'd be delighted. It's 20 pence at the Student Union. What are you doing in the Student Union? I'm still a member of the National Union of Students. Are you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Karen. I don't know why that's funny. I'm, I'm trying. I'm, not, I, I'm trying to. Do... I dress in t-shirt and jeans. I, I talk about football and music. I'm a student. You are. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to distract from the fact that I wasn't aware how big Australia was, Karen. But crap. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, with regards to this, I, I guess the route that we would have to look at would be the one of negligence by the hotel, by the uh, institution. Um, and could the football club sue the hotel for negligence in the case of food poisoning? Well, from my recollection of the legal position, you'd be looking at three things. First of all, does the hotel have a duty of care towards its guests? I think the argument will be there. Yes. Um, Has there been a breach of duty? I think potentially yes. And has there been a financial loss due to that breach of duty? Again, potentially yes. So in theory, there could be a claim made. The hotel itself would have presumably have some form of public liability insurance uh, in, in respect of claims similar to this proving that it was the restaurant food could be more complicated because you know anybody that's ever been involved in any form of medical negligence uh, activity will know that it's a quite a laborious and painful experience to go through so th- there is a, there is a potential uh, financial consequence here but i think as always the burden of proof is is on the, the party making the claim and that could be a more complicated issue. Mm. Our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from John Gannon. And John says, taking Kieran's advice, I joined the student union. At Manor. Um, taking Kieran's advice, I watched with interest the excellent Gate Money documentary on YouTube. Um, given that National League governance remains at best opaque and lacking independence, what's to stop the clubs who were treated inequitably during the pandemic from breaking away on block? Given that they were generally the clubs with the bigger crowds, surely their revenue-generating ability from gate receipts puts them in a powerful position. You probably were going to do this anyway, Kieran, but it might be worth just a brief um, precy. Again, that's a tautology, isn't it? Brief precy, but just of what the film Gate Money um, is about, which and you do recommend it, and rightly so. It's really, really interesting. Yes, this is a, a documentary which was uh, created following the decision by the government to provide uh, effectively what's best described as a wodge of funding (laughs) to the National League um, as a contribution to allow matches to take place uh, during the pandemic when, when they couldn't physically have crowds attending. And the way in which the National League then made their decision and there's two issues is a how big is your cake and b how do you cut that cake 
And the way that the cake was cut has provoked a lot of reaction because initially the feeling was that um, the cake should be cut broadly in line with the average attendances of the clubs that they were affected and, and the, therefore the loss of whatever it was going to be, whether it was you know, 800, 1200, 1500. So the, the clubs with the biggest attendances would have received the most amount of the, the government funding. And this proved not to be the case. And it was done effectively on, on a fairly straight line basis. And that, as a result, meant that, meant that some clubs, those clubs which had relatively low attendances, actually ended up with more money from the government funding than they would have expected to have received through the uh, actual people attending matches. And that created a bit of uh, a backlash, amongst, especially amongst the larger clubs. Um, our very good friend Tracy Crouch, I think she, she said she didn't feel that this was particularly equitable, and, and she features in the film Gate Money. Um, I, I, I would recommend it. It's, it's up there on YouTube. It's, uh, uh, it, it's a very well-researched uh, piece of work. And for the sake of transparency, I'm, I am in it myself. <laughs> I, I, I was unpaid. I wouldn't, wouldn't claim the fee because it's, it's something that, you know, from, from our point of view on the show, yeah, we, we are I, – I know we get accused of being, uh, you know, tofu eating wokerati uh, in terms of our uh, fairly liberal views on, on – most subjects, but this this is football, and, and this this just seemed unreasonable. And then you looked at the makeup of the people making the decision at the national league level, and it could have just been a coincidence. But the clubs that generated the most benefit also happened quite often to have representation. Mm. So I think there was there was a fear that there was some form of conflict of interest. So, so that's that's the uh, documentary itself. It's 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 a really good and thought provoking piece of work, and there's it, it's good to see that there is independent journalism taking place. I'm not getting on any high horse here. It's just disappointing that there's not enough of it taking place in in modern society. Um, so, with regards to John's suggestion about a breakaway. I can understand that in theory. And yes, those clubs would benefit from higher gate receipts. But it also has to be remembered that the National League itself is part of a much bigger ecosystem. Mm. So first of all, the National League is affiliated to the Football Association and the FA Cup is a big competition for National League clubs. And National League clubs enter the FA Cup at you know just prior to in the in the main the first the first round when when the uh when the EFL teams arise. So would they therefore get access to the FA Cup at that qualifying position or would they have to go right back to the start? Remember the FA Cup for 23-24 has already started. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, so I think there will be issues there. Secondly, there is a TV deal, but, and therefore there are broadcasting rights coming in. They're not huge, but they're still potentially worth having. 
And it's good if you are chosen because you do have the opportunity to have your ground, your sponsors appear. So therefore, that can also help your, your sponsorship rights. And then we've got the third issue is that as far as, as far as the hierarchy of English football is concerned, the National League has an arrangement with the EFL such that two clubs from the EFL, so two clubs will be relegated yeah. and two clubs, uh, one directly and one via the playoffs, will be promoted. That, necess- that deal would have to be scrapped, stroke renegotiated. And where does it leave promotion to the EFL? Because the National League will say, well, you know, these clubs resigned. We've still got a deal with the EFL. And therefore, we feel that um, our clubs should have that right of promotion. And you've got the breakaway league saying, well, and can you see the mess that would arise on the back of this as a consequence. So I can understand the extent of the the anger and yeah, we, we've spoken privately to owners of clubs who who do genuinely feel wronged and there is still rancor and bitterness leveled towards the hierarchy of the National League. And I don't think that's been resolved as yet. But I don't think that a breakaway would work from a practical or a financial point of view. Our final question, Kieran, comes from Gary Cody. Um, and I feel I should warn our listeners that there is going to be singing involved in this. Um, Gary Cody says, depending on when you're reading this, Happy New Year, Happy St. Patrick's Day, Happy Easter, Happy Bobby Zamora Day. Um, Bobby Zamora, a fine player, Kieran, except for one particular club that he wasted his uh, several months at, but responsible for one of my favourite football songs ever which was, if you sit in Rosette and the ball hits your head, that's Zamora. That's a clack. Whoever came up with that, take the rest of the day off. So Gary is a QPR fan. Uh, Gary's question is quite a simple one. It's basically, which is the best run club in each of the Premier League, the Championship, League One and League Two? Okay, uh, Kieran Maguire, how to make yourself unpopular with tw- with supporters of 23 clubs <laughs> in each division. <laughs> Let's go. Um, Bring it on. Yes. Okay, so I, I have done an analysis here. Other opinions are available, and I think other key performance indicators can be taken into consideration here. I'm going to look at this purely through a financial lens. Yeah, of course. So those fans of opposing teams, of other teams, will say, yeah, but have you seen the seen their trophy cabinet though, Kieran? <laughs> um I, I get that, but that wasn't the question that I was being asked by by Jerry. Um as far as the Premier League is concerned, um without doubt my my answer would be Spurs. Mm. Um had it not been for the takeover, I would have also been given a high commendation to Burnley. I think their finances have changed significantly since the leverage buyout. Um, in terms of governance and transparency, I, I would give a shout out to Brighton here in terms of the way that they they do communicate very well. Yes, and their finances have been good. Their finances have been good for eighteen months, but that ignores the losses which were being incurred before. So I, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put them. Uh, you know, high up from the overall seven years. Um, when it comes to the championship, um, here, uh, going back to Sandra Thompson's question earlier, in my view, the best run club financially is, is Rotherham United oh, wow, okay. in the sense that they do have one of the smallest budgets year in, year out. 
their objective at the start of the season is to avoid relegation. And um, on modest crowds and of championship wages, which are around about a third of the average, I, th- I think that they have, have a model which works. Again, shout outs for generally pretty, you know, what I would call well-run clubs, uh, Plymouth and Hull. I think uh, yeah, Plymouth have just reached the the championship, but uh, you know, I've, I've admired the way that they have a strategy in, in terms of income generation. When it comes to League One, um, the, the people I would mention here, um, I think Exeter City, classic example of a fan-owned club. Yeah. They, they have benefited from player sales. And, and I, I know I've been taken to task by some Exeter fans by saying, well, if it hadn't been, we hadn't sold X and Y, we wouldn't be in this position. But you did sell X and Y, and therefore you're in the position. Again, uh, commendations to Lincoln and Carlisle United. And with regards to League Two, uh, in my view, Grimsby Town, um, highly commended. Accrington Stanley, you know, Andy Holt. Yeah, we, we've we've done our show at Accrington. We've met Andy. He 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 sets his budget and he does very well. Um Good, good work at Tranmere as well in terms of trying to run the club across more uh, financially sustainability lines. And I'm also, and, and this people might might raise an eyebrow here, given that they have had uh, significant problems, um, Morecambe. Morecambe oh, have the, okay. probably the lowest budget in League Two. And we've spoken historically about separating football clubs from football club owners because we talk about... Manchester United making this decision or Liverpool making this decision, but it's not football clubs themselves are in, you know, they, they are, are inanimate objects. So it, that does come down to management. And I think with, with respect to uh, Morecambe, my observation is that the owners are different from the people who are working 24 seven in many occasions at board level, trying to, just allow the club to, to survive in, in an area which, yeah, it's not a footballing hotbed. Um, yeah, anybody that's uh, been watching the, the Tyson Fury uh, show on Netflix, you know, you, you will see what Morecambe Bay is like. I, I've taught at Lancaster University, so you know, I, I, I know Morecambe. It's, it's not a footballing city as such in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, got, it's got an awful lot of things to offer. But it does have a team. They've been very successful in getting to the EFL in the first place. And I think the people who are working there are, are very genuine. I think they've got very big problems with owners in respect of Carlisle. Again, you know, we've been worried about some of their circumstances yeah. before. Mm-hmm. I'd separate out the people who are working hard at board level from the lack of communication they're getting from a significant lender. Although we, we could be moving to we could be moving to new ownership situations in both the case of Morecambe and Car Morecambe and Carlisle. Wow. Uh, and with any luck, Kieran South End as well. Starting to be more positive noises there. Wouldn't that be uh, I think we might have to have the day off the pod. What the the day we get to yes. announce some good news for South End fans and then Reading fans, who knows? Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you, and you can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. We've now added a new benefit for our £5 a month subscribers, otherwise known as our ultras. I can't, I, the, the whole breathing in situation, Kieran, was really compromised, but I try not to laugh as I say, why are we calling them our ultras? 
Anyway, God love them, every single one of our ultras. We've set up a Discord channel for our ultras, and we'll be doing live half-hour chats on there once a month. In fact, we've just confirmed that our first one will happen at 7 o'clock on Thursday, August the 31st. So if you'd like to chat with the two of us or producer Guy, sign up for our £5 a month option, and we'll see you there. Will we, will we actually see them, Kieran? Um, I think we will be chatting sort of glorified text form. Oh, yeah, great. We won't, yeah. We, uh, producer Guy is the person that knows the technology. Right, okay. We are just the hired hands. It's yeah, 7 o'clock on a Thursday, Kieran. I'm, I'm normally in the pyjamas by then. <laughs> if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And finally, if you'd like to pre-order our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, or one of our other books, or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt or some of the other merch that I believe is on the way, then you can go to our New Look website at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Monday with our news pod. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, Thanks again, folks. And, and also just a reminder that we have now confirmed that yep. uh, Kevin and I, uh, and possibly producer guy, uh, he's he, he's counting his money that day, so he might not have finished. Um, <laughs> we will be appearing at uh, at WordFest, uh, which is the, the, I think it's the Look North uh, Literary Festival, taking place in Blackpool uh, at the Winter Gardens on Thursday, the 12th of October. Tickets are now available. We'll, we'll put up a link to those um, as soon as we can. And we've, we've got some other dates. Uh, we have, I think we've almost confirmed one for the for Salford Lowry. We have. Um, yeah. And again, we will be putting, and that will be October. So we're hoping to have some October and November uh, opportunities to, uh, to bring the show uh, around because I know people uh, want to meet Finlay. The distinct impression I got. So we, might be, we, we might come there, and then next week uh, is, is, is Finley coming? Uh, well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll yeah. see what we can do. Uh, I, I, it, it doesn't tend to do long distance. That's all I would say. Um, so, so thank you for all your support. There's another way that you could support the show, um, and that's that's to give us a review. By all accounts, it helps with the algorithms. Um, it helps us in the charts and so on. And by all accounts, it doesn't matter what you say as far as the review is concerned. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Luis Rubiliales, <laughs> the president of the Spanish <laughs> FA. And I thought, who would I most like to be in a room with him? And I came to the conclusion it would be Joe Brand. And there's only going to be one winner in that particular show. <laughs> I shall, I shall put that to her. I think she might be up for that. I'll put it, I'll put it to her. Uh, it's terrific. She's in the book, by the way, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. The Price of Football. I'm for the